All right. Well, uh, I want to welcome our listeners today. This is Thane Jansen with the Changing Waters podcast uh, for the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And I'm here this morning with uh, with my friend uh, and uh uh, and, and colleague, uh, Tony Johnson. Tony, uh, yeah, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, but Tony is the chair of the Chinook Indian Nation, but uh, we want to talk to him about that, but uh, we also, more importantly, want to talk to him about the uh, Pacific Northwest uh, canoe journey that Tony has been involved with uh, for many years now. So, Tony, uh, let's start uh, the conversation by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your own background um, and uh, your involvement in the canoe journey and your position as chair of the uh, Chinook Indian Nation. Well, Slochalium Kanoe Slochsta, Kunchi Slush Dumdum, Naikapus. Wow, what the news could be, well, Kagwa, Nike Shikshawa, then it's Hayu Iktanamunk Kaba Ugukna Ili. A brief greeting in my uh, Chinookwawa language, and it is my pleasure to be here with my good friend Thane. Um, my name is Tony Johnson, or my tribal name is Nostio, and I was born and raised here in southwest Washington in my Chinook people's territory. And also as referenced, it's my great pleasure to uh, be the elected chairman of the Chinook Indian Nation. And just as a point of clarification, our Chinook Nation is made up of five tribes at the mouth of the Columbia River. Two of those, the Clatsop and Cashlamet, are in what is now modern-day Oregon. And three of them, the Lower Chinook, Wakayakum, and Willapaw, are in present-day Washington. So again, the mouth of the Columbia River and its adjacent seacoasts. All right, and uh, Tony, uh, let's uh, let's talk just a little bit before we get into the the canoe journey, which I know is of great interest uh, uh, to me as well as to our listeners. But let's talk about the Chinook Indian Nation just a, a little bit uh, more briefly, uh, because as you and I both know, uh, it has. Uh, uh, had a very uh, not unusual in in uh, Indian country, but a, a tortured history uh, in which uh, it was a tribe that was probably preeminent, uh, and and in fact, in some historians' minds, was the preeminent tribe uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, uh, probably for time immemorial, and certainly when uh, the age of discovery beginning in, in the late 1700s. Uh, but since that time, um, why don't you go ahead and describe for our listeners what's happened? Well, it's a big question, saying, <laughs> and as you know, a loaded one. Um, our Chinook community had very much the same type of experience, I think, as any other tribal community in North America and maybe just across the Americas. But the difference for us is a breakdown in the era of the treaties. By the way, I shouldn't just pass by the fact that, you know, we lost over 90% of our people to foreign disease. I mean, some really dramatic moments that got us to those times of the treaty era, uh, but in our case, the um, two opportunities we had to participate in treaty negotiations ended up with um, requests from the government, and I'll say demands because there's some really interesting examples of our oral histories as to what was actually said at these uh, uh, meetings. But the first of them in 1851 uh, was with Anson Dart at Tansy Point in what's now more or less Warrington, Oregon, so just west of Astoria, Oregon. But 
the request or his task, uh, Anson Dart, that is, was to move uh, or prepare us for a move east of the mountains. Well, for folks that don't know it, Washington State are, is really two wholly different environments. And while, yes, we may have been more or less on the Columbia River, which we are Currently, uh, it would have meant moving to a totally different environment into an area with a wholly different group of tribal people. And we refused. We said we we're staying with the bones of our ancestors. And actually, in that case, uh, made Anson Dart see that that was the right choice. And he then negotiated treaties that would allow us, or we negotiated to allow us to stay within our Aboriginal territories. Unfortunately, those were not ratified uh, by the Senate, or at least they sat stagnant for a very long time. Uh, there was another negotiation with us in 1855, uh, just north of where I am now. And at, in that negotiation. Again, it was an effort to move us north out of our territory, in that case, into the territory of our traditional enemies, and we refused. Uh, we simply said, again, we're staying with the bones of our ancestors. So by not being, I'm going to say, good little Indians, uh, we have ended up in a very unusual situation where we exist clearly in our own territory. We are acknowledged by every branch of government, including the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but we do not have a clear status as a, quote, federally recognized tribe here in our own territory. There's a million reasons to say why that's completely out of line and uh, bizarre. And, of course, can speak to the grief it causes us. But the bottom line is uh, we have been in a multi-generational fight to clarify our status here in our territory at the mouth of the Columbia River and to be able to move forward like all the other federally recognized tribes um, in the United States. Okay. Well, you know, uh, as you and I both – uh, our resolve to do, we're going to do everything in our power uh, to make sure that that historic wrong is righted. But one of the things that has uh, impressed me so much about your work and, and that of the Chinook Indian tribe is that despite uh, this uh, uh, present uh, absence of federal recognition, the Chinook Indian Nation uh, today is uh, is one of the most active, one of the largest, and and uh, certainly um, one of the most active in preserving Indian culture in the uh, Pacific Northwest. And I wanted, that's what we really want to talk about primarily uh, this morning in our conversation, and in particular, uh, the canoe journey. So let's, let's get into that, Tony. Uh, tell us about uh, the canoe culture as it existed historically, and then uh, about its revival. Oh, our... Rivers, you know, we live here uh, in tidal uh, Washington State still at the moment. These rivers were really the highways of our ancestors and the vehicles uh, for transportation, for hunting, for fishing, for carrying large amounts of trade goods, um, you know, were canoes. And our canoes are really, uh, you know, worldwide acknowledged as, as really exceptional um, sea-going, ocean-going vessels. They're made out of old-growth western red cedar, um, which, by the way, in our current efforts is really difficult to come by, as you would expect. But... These canoes are carved, they're steamed and bent open, they have prow and stern pieces attached and ranged in size from something that a woman could carry on her back from lake to lake or pond to pond while gathering to, you know, 40 plus foot um, massive canoes that, 
you know, could carry dozens of folks in huge amounts of material. I should say also that these canoes really inspired the first uh, European fur uh, traders and explorers that came to this region. And uh, arguably, it uh, the design of our canoes was what inspired the clipper ship, which was the, you know, fastest load you know, highest load carrying vessel of its day. And uh, that's really what our canoes are good at. They're, they're really fast in the water and they can carry a great amount of material or people. And so to say it, uh, we have an unbroken chain of canoe making, of canoe culture, and uh, not going to say it wasn't damaged, but it's my great fortune to say that my own elders were people that were raised in canoes and had that experience in their lifetime. Um, and then in turn, I've had the good fortune of learning how to build canoes as an aside, I was just up looking at a canoe log this weekend, but, uh, you know, the perpetuation of this skill set of making canoes, the life ways associated with being on the water, the intimate knowledge that we have of all of this, uh, you know, the waterways, our country here, and the ability to learn from our neighbors and their knowledge, you know, their tribal knowledge of their waters is really a great pleasure, but also something that deserves to have the life that it really is gaining in a resurgence of this, of this culture and tradition. Yeah, in the uh, these canoes, uh, they were not just used in the rivers as well. They were used in the ocean, uh, were they not? Correct. They were used. I mean, we had canoes for every type of water and um, the ocean going canoes were not even all necessarily really large canoes. We just had or have, I'll say, a skill set that allows uh, the operation of those canoes in really varied water and varied conditions. And then also um, the canoes themselves are the product of 10,000 years of engineering specific to our waters and our conditions. There are some really uh, interesting quotes over time outside of our own culture, you know, from observers. So Lewis and Clark, for instance, at one moment were stuck on the North Shore or North Bank of the Columbia River and had no ability to leave the bank in the vessels that they had made, yet uh, they watched and really marveled at a Chinook canoe that came across or came to them, uh, traded fish, understanding they were in a real predicament and then or really delivered fish and then uh, left in what was really, you know, exceptionally bad weather at the mouth of the Columbia River. And I think in that moment we gained um a status and a note from those guys that we really were the best um, canoemen or, you know, best uh, best folks they'd ever seen operating uh, canoes. Yeah, and the mouth of the Columbia River is where uh, the historic grounds of the of the Chinook Indian Nation are located. And this is, I mean, this is big water. This is four or five miles across at the mouth of the river, uh, big current, uh, and uh, depending on the time of the year, or depending on the winds, I mean, these are extremely challenging waters uh, for even the most experienced uh, boaters and certainly for canoes. So it took extraordinary skill to be able to navigate these waters and to do it on a regular day in, day out basis as your ancestors did, right? No, that is correct. And the reality is, is it's something we didn't even think about uh, being in a canoe and 
you know, jumping in and out of a canoe and moving about our territory or even crossing the Columbia River Bar or Willapaw Bay Bar or being in the ocean. Those are actually things that don't even make the details, for instance, of our stories. So we talk about, you know, uh, well, we have really a university of knowledge housed in our traditional stories. But in those stories, when somebody um, is traveling north or crosses the bar or does something that today is looked at as being kind of dramatic, it literally doesn't even make the stories. Yes, there are plenty of times that canoes are referenced, but it's in a very different context. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk though, a little bit more just about the history before we get into what I've characterized as a revival, but, but perhaps uh, not as accurately as some. It sounds like you, Tony, were, were one of the, I would say, few that actually never really lost that canoe culture that uh, had it passed down uh, from generation to generation so that you grew up. Uh, still in this in this canoe culture, but that was not true of all of uh, the other tribal members throughout the Northwest. And when I talk about the Northwest, as I understand it, the canoe culture. In fact, you should probably explain this, but it extended from what Southeast Alaska clear down to the Columbia River. Correct. Well, that is correct. Meaning that, well, really, I, I'm going to say that. Personally, I believe that as long as there's been human beings, there's been canoes and been boats and been watercraft. And so, truly, there probably is an unbroken tradition of canoe uh, canoe culture from, you know, the very northernmost extents of Alaska all the way to the southernmost uh, extents of South America. But with that said, uh, we do have a specific flavor of uh, culture, canoe culture in the Pacific Northwest. And I think you're right to describe it as really Southeast Alaska through um, probably actually Northern California is, you know, like generally a larger culture group uh, in which we share a number of connections. The actual canoe style that we operate is has typically been called the Chinook style canoe, although t- uh, some folks refer to it today as West Coast style. That canoe um, has currency from about two-thirds of the way up Vancouver Island down to about Alsea, Oregon. So gives you an idea of the range. I should say too that, you know, multiple communities, um, well, all those communities encompassed in that range and beyond have varying levels of kind of maintenance of this culture. Um, I don't think Chinook is unique in being able to say it's unbroken but damaged. Um, I think that's really typical of what's happened on the coast. So we had folks in the early part of the 1900s, um, you know, regularly in canoes, and that kind of faded, uh, although – A number of our very well-known canoe makers uh, became boat builders and carried uh, some of that skill set forward there. Um, But we have fortunately had the benefit of those elders in our lives and been able to um, learn from them, glean from them, and and really, I, I like the term revitalization, you know, revitalize this, uh, this culture. So some of the folks participating today in tribal journeys, I think, have really had to relearn some of what they're doing. And some of them um, have had really strong, unbroken traditions. Okay, well, I like this term revitalization that you just used. So let's talk about that. Um, the uh, uh, historically, did the the uh, uh, the various tribes they occasionally, even though there may have been animosities and frictions, um, 
and conflict, uh, there nonetheless was some sort of trading uh, and interaction between the tribes for which canoes were used as the, the mode of travel between one tribal area to another, as, as I understand it. Is that, do I have that correct? Or, you know, let's, <laughs> I want to be sure that we understand that because that's what, as I understand, has really been the, um, the, the, the most significant feature of this revitalization, that now the, that there is this great um, relationship uh, and interaction between these Northwest canoe culture uh, tribes that uh, hasn't been seen for quite a while. We have had really kind of incredible contacts over great distances in our past. And in fact, these connections that you're referring to were kind of essential parts of our culture and economy because there are certain protocols and obligations associated with trade that demand uh, blood connections or marriage connections um, in terms of facilitating this really wide trade that existed on the northwest coast in the past. And that was certainly not the only reason we were trading people or traveling, forgive me, people traveled great distances to um, other events, to individuals, potlatches, to marriages, to namings, but again, to these great trading places like Celilo Falls or, you know, there's just, there's some places that have, you know, that really drew people from, from at times, I'm sure, thousands of miles. And, you know, that travel, the interaction that happened there were um, hugely valuable and uh, affected and formed much of what we consider to be our culture. So people were gathering, you know, traveling great distances, gathering in large numbers for marriage, for finding a spouse, for uh, gambling, for trading, for gaming, um, for sport, for all kinds of reasons. And today, um, this contemporary tribal journeys is really about keeping open those highways that connected our ancestors in the past and keeping alive the associated traditions of traveling in other people's territories, you know, of the physical culture of, of how to operate a canoe and how, you know, there's actually a philosophy associated with how people or philosophies about how people exist in a canoe together, because oftentimes these are, you know, in the past were multiple day trips uh, in which, of course, when you put many people in close, close proximity, it tests people. Uh, we had the same thinking and, and set of philosophies about how it was that we lived in our longhouses where you may have had 20, 30, 40 or more people living in a single house. And, you know, again, the, the traditions and life ways associated with being able to do that in a really efficient way that allowed everybody to thrive is a big part of of what we are continuing today. Oh, wonderful. Well, let's talk about the, the revitalization. Because uh, uh, our late uh, our late friend uh, and your your cousin Marvin Oliver and his father Emmett played a big role in that, as I understand it. Why don't you tell our listeners about that? That's right. Um, you know, and to be clear, our canoe culture and all of the other associated things you'll hear about that happen on tribal journeys really did need something 
like this, uh, this contemporary revitalization of canoe culture that we call uh, tribal journeys today. Um, but the origin of tribal journeys as it currently exists has a number of um, roots, both in BC, British Columbia, and here in Washington State. The really driving force that created what we all participate in today, which by the way, and we'll say more about it, but today when the canoes arrive at a final hosting, there's 10,000 tribal people. There are 100 plus canoes and there is a solid week of singing and dancing that happens. And when I say solid, I mean 24 hours a day. So there's a lot to say about that. But in terms of what brought the canoes or brought us to this moment today with that kind of extraordinary um, moment is Emmett Oliver, who was a uh, Chinook and Cowlitz man, born and raised here in Pacific County. Uh, this is Chinook country, Pacific County, Washington. He was raised here, had a very fascinating life, which I'd encourage people to look at, read about in his book called Two Paths. But there was work being done in preparation for the centennial of the state of Washington. And in that, Emmett and some others felt that there needed to be a much stronger representation of the native people of the state. And he and others went to work on um, the development of what would be known as the Paddle to Seattle. So this is an event where he reached out to numerous tribes and asked them to either consider building new canoes or dusting off their old canoes and paddling to Seattle as a part of the centennial celebration. That happened in 1989. There's a great deal to say about it. But at that landing, which happened at Golden Gardens in, uh, you know, just north of Seattle, a individual or a group of individuals in a canoe from the community of Bella Bella, which is about what, 90 miles north of Vancouver Island, you know, quite a ways up coastal British Columbia, came also by canoe. And at the event, they challenged, this is a man named Frank Brown, he challenged the canoes that had arrived to come to his community four years later in 1993. And folks did that. Folks met that challenge. It's uh, 30 days of travel for many canoes to go that far north. People did it, and that really birthed the new tribal journeys movement as it exists. So today, people will make an announcement on the floor of the potlatch being hosted by the host community of Tribal Journeys about a willingness to host the next year or three years out or five years out. And so these are really invitations to a potlatch, but also a bit of a challenge to, hey, come, bring your canoes to our community. And that really was the birth moment of what's uh, what's now an annual event that communities and individual families spend great amounts of time preparing for, living for, and ultimately, to say it, this has become one of the greatest prevention activities in Indian country, period. What I mean by that is these are drug and alcohol-free events. We want... Well, 
community members and community youth want to participate. They want to be on the canoes. They want to be involved with all of the other associated uh, activities and events of canoe journey or tribal journeys. And so they are willing to forego the temporary pleasures, whatever, of drinking or whatever it might be in order to be a part of a bigger thing, something bigger than them. And it's really been a fantastic thing for the Northwest Coast and for Northwest Coast Native communities. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Now, you used the term, uh, Tony, several times now that may not be familiar to uh, to many of our listeners, and that's the term potlatch. What, what, what is a potlatch? A... Potlatch is, well, generally speaking, a potlatch can take any number of forms. It really varies between communities and certainly varies, um, you know, in terms of what its purpose is in a community. But the bottom line is that potlatching is the process on the Northwest Coast of hosting an event. At that event, any number of things will happen from the host community or host family. Um, Most often these are family events. So for instance, a naming. Uh, My family wants to hold a naming. We bring people together. We have amassed a great deal of goods um, for this event. We bring people to us, to our community. We do the work of the naming. We share in that context our family's wealth, meaning our songs, our dances, for what it's worth. The names themselves are a part of what we consider family wealth. And at the end of the event, we give And our teaching is give till it hurts. So we give away a great deal of things to the folks that have come to witness. And it's really a contract because a person that comes to a potlatch and witnesses what has happened there agrees in taking the gifts from the host, from the family. When they take those gifts, that seals the contract that those people have agreed that the name or names that were given, the songs or dances that were performed, that these are in fact owned by that family or that community and that you know, it's an acknowledgement of the wealth of the family. So it's a different kind of wealth, but a very, very important and very real thing to us. So really, that's what a potlatch is. It's bringing people together. It's sharing um, your family or community's wealth and then giving gifts to um the visitors and those visitors in taking those gifts are basically agreeing that everything that was done was done right and that it was, you know, according to protocol and that, in fact, the things that they witnessed were the rights or owned by the community. In the context of tribal journeys, it becomes something much bigger, which is at a tribal journeys potlatch, every community that has arrived on the beach by canoe is given the opportunity to stand on the floor or take the floor of the potlatch and sing their songs, share their words, do their dances, and That happens according to a very ancient tradition of ours, which is the people from the furthest away go first. And so that builds itself up in people taking the floor, 
to a point where it is only the host community left. In the context of tribal journeys, this could be four, five, six, seven days into the event. The host community will take the floor, oftentimes sing and dance for many, many, many hours. And then the event is concluded with uh, potlatching, with gift giving from the community to all of the folks that have gathered for that purpose. Wow, I just what a what a special uh, event uh, this all must be. How many have you participated in, Tony, of these uh, uh, tribal journeys? And uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh, perhaps your most recent experience. But how many have you yourself participated in? Well, I have had connections to the folks that created or really philosophized about what this is um, since before there was uh, tribal journeys. So friends of mine like Philip Red Eagle, Connie McLeod, um, Tom Heidelbaugh, uh, Mary McQuillan, David Fourlines. I mean, these are people that had, you know, really important formative, for lack of a better way of saying it, conversations and meetings uh, around, you know, what this could be, what this could become. And so I feel really blessed to have been around some of those conversations involved in something called the Theater Tree Institute that happened um, really between that first paddle to Seattle and the first actual journey trip up to Bella Bella. So a lot of involvement and per periphery involvement with the formation of a lot of this. On the other hand, I did not operate a canoe um, on tribal journeys for many years early on. Yes, I participated with other folks and was at a number of the earliest journeys, um, but only have we taken our Chinook canoes um, on tribal journeys annually since 2005. We have had canoes operating in the community for many years before that, of course, but in terms of making the commitment to bring the community as a canoe family on tribal journeys, that began for us in 2005 and we've traveled every year since. So what have you observed during that, well, it's roughly almost 15 years now in terms of the, uh, uh, the changes or growth uh, uh, or evolution of this, uh, uh, of the tribal journey? Is it, is it a movement that's growing in size um, and, and in participants? Um, how would you describe or characterize it? So what we really have been witness to is the growth of this movement from what was really just the canoes themselves, the people in them, and, you know, meaning this was a much smaller thing uh, in 2005 and prior uh, when I've been involved or, you know, having been at other hostings or with other canoe families, the reality is, is it used to be that we could all fit in a gym. Um, you know, this was much more focused inward just on the canoes and canoe crews themselves and a much more kind of close relationship with the communities that were hosting us along the way. So it has really dramatically changed because today hostings are happening typically in giant uh, tents with bleacher setups. Uh, they are certainly much, much more expensive. There's much more of kind of a carnival or fair atmosphere at the final arrival, um, meaning that there's a really large uh, 
vending area. There is a large, um, you know, food service arrangement. There's also, of course, an incredible camping situation that happens on, you know, in that context, because like I said, there's 10,000 people that are there at a final arrival or around that moment on tribal journeys. And all of those folks are pretty much camping uh, on the host community's territory. So it's really blossomed, grown into uh, something really um, amazing. I don't know how else to say it. I think some of us wished for the kind of intimate, um, smaller nature of what it was at one time, but we also really love that it is affecting so many more people and bringing together so many more more folks. In fact, uh, when we travel, we regularly travel with a group of people that come over from New Zealand. So there's Maori, you know, indigenous Maori representatives that are often traveling either on our canoes or on our neighboring communities canoes. We've had folks from Hawaii. We have folks that come from the East Coast of the United States that are canoe culture people themselves. We've had other folks out of South America. It really draws an incredible group of people and, you know, is feeding a, a very big movement of the revitalization of canoes, canoe culture, and associated culture, which I do want to say something about. I'll let you ask if you have another question, but I really want to spell out for our listeners today what it actually looks like uh, in terms of the travel to a community. Well, that was my next question, and uh, this is indeed a fascinating uh, experience just to listen to you, Tony. So please explain for us what what these journeys are really like. Yeah, absolutely. For my own Chinook canoe family, we at times travel from home. And at other times, we take people's invitations to travel from their communities. We thoroughly enjoy that opportunity. So while it's really important to us to to leave from home and travel all the waters from our own place to where we're going, we also do mix that up and take invitations to travel with relatives and friends from other communities. And the benefit of that is seeing other waters, experiencing the teachings of those other communities, you know, traveling hand in hand with those, uh, those folks. So I want to acknowledge that that happens and is really an important part of the, the culture that's grown out of it. But typically, we will leave from our own territory, which means in that case, it would mean going um, out into the ocean and traveling north, though we do also often, like I say, start in other communities. So, for instance, this last year, we started with the Squaxin Island community, which is kind of in the extreme southern end of the Puget Sound or the Salish Sea. And when we do this, we basically travel one community to the next on the water. So we will travel, for instance, from Squaxin Island. We left Squaxin Island. There is a tradition and protocols associated with how you even leave somebody's territory. So we have quite a few relatives in Squaxin Island and kind of came in there as family this year. But in leaving their their territory, getting out onto their water. We have obligations to untie our canoes and ask permission to leave. We do that. Oftentimes that's uh, bright and early, but it's dependent on tides. It could be at times four in the morning and it could be considerably later. But bottom line is we leave a territory and travel by water 
to the next community. At the next community, we'll arrive on their beach. They will, well, there's protocols as to even how we approach the beach because the tradition of how you arrive in somebody's territory and show them that you've come with only good intentions, that you've come in peace, that you've come to not cause any trouble is really, really important and something that we acknowledge every time we arrive on a beach. So typically we will make a large loop as we come by the shore, we'll flip up our paddles in a salute, we'll drift by, we'll put them back in, we'll come around a large circle, and we'll set the nose of our canoe up on their beach. When we do that, that's a very defenseless position to give them the bow of your canoe. And it's the proof that we've come in a good way. At that point, we ask permission to come ashore to that community. We remind them of our knowledge of their community, of our past experiences of really beautiful hostings and being really well taken care of. A really typical thing that people will say from the canoes is that we're hungry, we're tired, you know, and we want to come ashore. That community will then offer its welcome and its invitation to come ashore, come ashore. When that happens, then um, every community where we arrive is providing us a place to camp. They're generally setting a meal table as this is all happening. We will have a meal with them. They'll make sure that we know and have access to, you know, bathrooms, showers, whatever it is we need. And then after the meal, we'll usually clear the floor or go to a different location, go to a longhouse, could even be in somebody's football field. And we'll, uh, they, the community will open the floor. That's what we call it. And that floor is a space, a sacred space for us to sing and dance and to interact with each other we call that protocol so that's doing our protocol and that protocol could involve words it could involve singing and dancing usually does um, and each community again from its fur from the furthest away to the closest will be there on that floor sharing their songs and dances I don't want to neglect the fact that we also have a land crew or a ground crew that will have, in this instance, driven from our camp at Squaxin Island up to Nisqually and set up camp, given us, you know, arranged a place for us to stay so that as the people come off the canoes, we're able to go to a camp that's already established from our community, from our canoe family, uh, change, drop off our gear, take care of any issues that need taken care of. It's off to dinner. Then it's protocol, which could often go really late. And then it's a skipper's meeting, which is something I really covet, which is a chance to sit with often the elders and fishermen and women of the community who will talk about what the next day looks looks like. You know, they will tell you about the water of their territory, what it's going to be like, what time we need to leave to be able to beat a current or to be with the tide or to make it to the next destination. Like I said, that next morning could be at four in the morning. It could be that we leave entirely in the dark. It could be, you know, any number of times, but generally early. And we're up and out again, asking permission to leave from the host community and pulling in the canoe. And these pulls could be hours long or they could be many, many hours long. There are numerous legs that we make in tribal journeys that are more than 12 hours on the water. But again, arriving at the next community, same process, asking permission to come ashore, being hosted, being up late, and then back on the water early 
two different crews going, the canoe crews and the ground crews to each location, one on land, one by water. And we just go community to community. Well, you can see where really quickly this becomes a truly spiritual journey for the participants. And that's on the land and in the water because this is physically exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. And by the time you've traveled 5, 10, 15 like we said, there are folks that travel 30 days on tribal journeys annually. And, you know, by the time you're well into that, people are physically pushed to their limits. There's very little sleep going on. There's a lot of really strong and heavy cultural um, components happening all the time. You know, we're out singing on the water. We're teaching on the water, we're uh, on shore, being welcomed by songs, we're singing our meal songs at dinner, we're singing at protocol, and we're going to bed to the sounds of somebody else's drumming almost every night. This becomes a truly spiritual journey and really moving for people and, and legitimately changes people's lives. Well, I can well imagine. Uh, so give us a sense of uh, how many people are in the crew of a canoe and what's the age range? Um, sure. Different people, different communities travel in different ways. And I mean, in some ways, this is like dramatically different ways. So there are communities who have canoes that are truly um, – you know, programs of a tribal government. So a youth program that has paid staff and youth from the community, and they are traveling together and have done this annually for many years with a kind of rotating group of youth of certain ages. There are also many folks traveling like our Chinook community who doesn't have the means of having youth programs and what have you. We just have a community of people um, that travel. You know, in our case, we travel as a true family. So I have at times or we have at times traveled with, you know, my my parents, my wife's parents, my wife and I, our kids. So generations of folks, but by the way, that's just a small part of the group. So many other people, adult, single adult individuals, other folks traveling as family. We've had great grandparents all the way down to the, the grandbabies. Um, my oldest daughter, Mary, is a accomplished skipper. And she traveled this year with her first baby. So our... Uh, first grandson and literally skippered the canoe um, while at times feeding her baby along the way. So I was pleased this year to run a support boat um, at times while she was skippering and being able to, to carry my grandson along in the support boat and provide him an opportunity to connect with mom and eat with mom while we were out on the water. So it really is a true family experience. And, you know, it's, it's that that is valuable. We have, you know, we recently lost a man that was a founding member of our canoe family, but also a hereditary chief um, from the village at Bay Center. And I can't tell you how many people um, that we travel with on tribal journeys, both in our own family, but also our associated or neighboring communities that had the opportunity to either be in a canoe with him, travel with him, uh, just peripherally that talk about you know the learning that they were able to do and just how strongly they felt about that opportunity to have been with uh, him as really you know not a really vocal person his name was Philip Hawks but as a true 
humble human being who just by his nature taught about, you know, the best ways to be as a, as a person. And so the influences, you know, multi-generational influences that happen in this case are really valuable. Another thing that's worth mentioning is quite often we will move uh, somebody from our canoe or canoe family into somebody else's canoe or canoe family for a leg on the journey or even multiple legs. And the learning that can happen through that, we will often take on other community uh, members from other places to just, hey, jump in and be with us today, or we need an extra puller. A lot of times we have extra pullers, you know, people that are able to make the canoe go more than we are able to carry in the canoe. So we'll let it be known to people we're camping near or communities we know well that, hey, we have a couple pullers. They'll get in, travel with a community from Warm Springs, Oregon, or from a house at British Columbia. And the teaching and sharing that comes out of that is really, really valuable. You asked about the number of people that can travel in the canoe. And our biggest canoe is almost 37 feet long. That canoe is one that we travel with annually on tribal journeys. Sometimes we take some of the other smaller canoes as well. Sometimes those will make the entire trip. Sometimes they'll just make parts of it. But that larger canoe, which is named Kashmin, Kashmin uh, holds, well, to have a, a good crew, we're at least nine, but we're really, um, oftentimes I shoot for around 15 people in the canoe. It is big enough that we're able to carry supplies and often several relief pullers right on board the canoe. So they will sit in the middle. Uh, it's a very large canoe. And then we can swap people out that might either get tired or just want to have the extra bodies there because, again, these 11, 10, 12, whatever hour days can uh, be really taxing on a crew. Well, I don't, <laughs> there's, you persuaded me of, of that, that is for sure. Uh, but it sounds like a very uh, uh, enriching experience for all involved. And wh what have you seen in terms of the way uh, this has affected uh, all of the, the, the tribal nations that participate in it? Uh, what's been the effect there? The idea of calling this one of the greatest prevention activities uh, on in North America or Native North America is not a, you know, I mean, it can't be overstated because, and what I mean by that is, you know, it, it's an opportunity for people to really change their lives and change their lives around. And there are many, many examples of taking a person more or less off the street or out of a lifestyle that was completely um, detrimental to themselves, putting them on the canoe and, you know, because these journeys are 100% alcohol, drug-free, abuse-free, uh, giving a person an opportunity to be immersed in culture and wash away, literally <laughs> wash away the, uh, the other lifestyle. And so there are numerous examples of people that we know who got on the canoe at really as an alcoholic or as a drug user or as a person abusing themselves or maybe even others who over the course of that journey completely changed the trajectory of their lives, have not used since, have not been that other person since. And that's the beauty of what this has done. And the thing is, it's done that across, you know, all of the communities that are participating, every tribal community, every canoe family can talk about and tell about the individuals who have been affected in that way. 
And so it's really creating this critical mass of people who are focused on positive living, are focused on washing away the, you know, so much of the negative aspects of living in Indian country today. And I do want to say one thing about that, and that is that people really judge Indian country and tribal communities for these problems that are so obvious and prevalent. But what I want to say is those are not our traditions. Those are traditions that actually came to us via the Indian boarding schools primarily because our people were forced to go to Indian boarding schools at which they were abused and often really brutally abused. And in turn, people came home self-medicated to try to deal with that abuse that was not a part of our culture. And unfortunately, some of those folks, especially in using, perpetuated those issues. So my thing is, you know, this is a really healthy opportunity to change and get out of what is truly intergenerational trauma and intergenerational issues that need to be washed back out of our communities. Well, that's just a wonderful, reassuring uh, message to, to hear. Uh, and um, you can't help but think, too, that the experience, particularly uh, as this has grown, is to bring all of the Native peoples particularly here in the Northwest together, but it sounds like that's even now extending, um, I mean, well beyond uh, the borders of even this country and, and the movement is growing internationally. Where do you see this? Uh, what's the next evolution? Where, what would you like to see happen uh, to, uh, where would you like to see this 10, 20 years from now? The strictness of our ancestors and the strictness of, of the life ways associated with our people. I mean, really, if you defined who we are or if you had to define it, it's really based on the taboos and rules that we kind of live by on a regular basis. Those rules have a life in this canoe culture. They have a life in a lot of other aspects of what we do, and certainly you'd see it if you came and stayed with me and my family, uh, meaning that there's you know, a lot of, lot of obligations and, and rules that we feel strongly about. I have a hard time even defining those without, well, I mean, for instance, in our teaching, a pregnant woman doesn't wear a necklace. Well, it may sound just like a little thing. It's probably like an American doesn't want to walk under a ladder. Or if you break a mirror, you know, it has this issue or throwing salt over your shoulder or whatever. You know, we have so many of those types of things that we've inherited. And those really make us, in a lot of ways, who we are. Well, those are associated with this movement naturally, the way that we are together, the way that we are on the water, the precautions we take, the words we say, the taboos we follow. And so my interest is that those just continue to have a strong life, a strong presence. I'm concerned that we don't um, wash away some of those hard things for, you know, just making things easier because there is an expectation of, or maybe it's an American idea of, you know, things should be easy, but that's not our traditions. That's not our teaching. And we thrive from having, you know, difficult things. I mean, being a native person is hard and following all of these rules is hard, but it makes for a good life and a, a life that, you know, bottom line that we want to see move forward for our children, grandchildren and the community around us. And so for me, I just want to see, and this is truly happening, this 
movement grow, gain strength, and thrive within the bounds of those traditions. Well, I tell you, I, 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 this has been to me uh, one of the most fascinating discussions that uh, I've had the privilege of participating in, and I, I'm confident that our listeners will agree. Anything else, uh, Tony, before we wrap up that, that you'd like to, to say about this, uh, this canoe journey experience, the culture and the, the challenges and, and, and the rewards of being a, a Native American and Indian in, in today's country? I think more than anything, I just want to acknowledge, and I'm not going to name them all, I named a few in the course of the conversation today, that these are not my words. You know, these are not my uh, opinions, not my philosophies. These are the teachings of our people and our community and, you know, the elders that I had a good fortune or the good fortune of learning from. And so I'm just acknowledging those folks, acknowledging all the other people like myself, my family, and my community who have invested their time, energy, and love into this, you know, the revitalization of this tradition and this really what we'd say is just a beautiful thing called tribal journeys. So for me, I'm just acknowledging everybody else. I'm lifting my hands up to each and every one of you and my teachers and and folks, thanks for listening. Yeah, and thank you, Tony. And uh, uh, again, a fascinating conversation and one of the ways in which um, the enrichment of the uh, the Native American culture here in the Northwest, uh, the enrichment of the culture nationally and internationally, uh, it's just a, a delight uh, to hear. And uh, again, thank you so much. And, and with that, we'll, we'll sign off.